Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. I'm sure you already know this. You can listen on uh, DAB, on Smart Speaker, at times.radio, or on the Times Radio app. Now, if you downloaded the Times Radio app and you thought, oh, that's a bit glitchy, we fixed it. Uh, so listening back and uh, it's showing the right show that you're uh, listening to, all that has been sorted. So uh, return to the Times Radio app or download if you haven't already. Basically means you can listen to the Times Radio wherever you are. Uh, coming up on today. Today's episode, the last episode of the week. In a moment, we're going to Australia. Virtually, obviously. Uh, travel restrictions and uh, a small budget uh, means that we can't actually go to Australia. But there's loads of interesting stuff happening there. Not all of it that great, actually. Uh, we're going to be talking about how they've been coping with coronavirus, how they are coping with a new outbreak of wildfires, and a growing trade and propaganda war with China. So all that is coming up in a sec. But first, it's Thursday, so our columnist panel are Robert Crampton and Esther Webber. Let's stick with vaccines and mm. what might persuade uh, someone to uh, get one. There's lots of talk about, you know, is Jonathan Van Tam the right person to do it? Should Boris Johnson be getting the vaccine on TV? Obviously, then there's the risk that he ends up becoming, well, he's jumped the queue, he shouldn't be getting it yet. But who would persuade you to have the vaccine, uh, Robert? I think maybe Hank. Hancock, but not necessarily in the arm. <laughs> yes, some, that would be good. That'd be good telly, wouldn't it? it? Somebody did suggest it should be sort of administered like the scene in Carry On Doctor, where I think right. the, the doctor slips yeah. on a pillow and it's yeah, um, it's all it's all done very swiftly. I think it's fair it's to a say. Bit like who was that minister? Was it Meller who fed his daughter a cheeseburger? Well, I suppose yeah. that is the slight problem, isn't it? Is this yeah. this stuff does risk looking incredibly. Naff, um, yeah. Esther. I can't remember. But was it Dan Poulter who, when he was a health minister, was constantly sort of popping his shirt off or rolling up his sleeve for things? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, 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 I think probably you're the only person in the country who remembers. That. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It made a huge dent in the public consciousness. But um, it was quite funny yesterday that um, you did a snap poll on the idea of Hancock getting vaccinated on TV. And 66% said, yes, they would like to see a needle stuck in there. <laughs> so I think it's um, at least uniting most of the country. I suppose the, the the more serious point to this, Robert, is it there are, depending on the polls that you look at, you know, is it, yeah. is, it is it one in five or is it one in ten people, at least have doubts. I think there's a difference between people who are a bit nervous about the whole thing and proper 
nutty anti-vaxxer types. Yeah, but... I was thinking about it. I think it kind of divides up into three groups. You've got your nutty anti-vaxxers, as you say. You've got young people who uh, seem to be saying, well, it doesn't really bother me anyway, so why should I have it? And then you've got people who are possibly a little bit nervous about the speed in which it's been approved. I mean, you had the uh, Fauci on the uh, saying today that we, the UK might have rushed things a bit, and there's a slight worry that perhaps the normal procedures have been slightly circumvented. I don't, I'm not suggesting that's the case, but you think, well, normally these things take five, ten years, and they've done it in eight or nine months. So, yeah, you've got those three groups of people who are all going to be anxious about it. I think the biggest problem is going to be logistical rather than uh, rather than a, a PR communication problem. I think uh, once everything gets going, the, the PR thing will take care of itself. But the 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 the, uh, the, the potential for bad for bad PR is that uh, lots of vulnerable people are not going to be reached. That's the difficulty, I think. And we've already seen that a bit, um, Esther, where yesterday, you know, when the list was published of who was going to get it, people in care homes were top of the list. And now it already sounds like that might not be quite the case. It actually might be NHS staff first. So already we've got, you know, and there's perfectly good reasons for that. It's really difficult to get this vaccine into care homes. But to be, if you were in a care home or you've got a loved one in a care home, you would think, well, if they get the vaccine, we'll be able to go and see them safely. Um, suddenly the, 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 the pieces are shifting already. Yeah, the... Government needs to be really careful with this, I think, because, um, yeah, I've got a grandmother in a care home and I think it's been really hard for everyone not to be able to see her. And obviously this massively raises hopes. And then today we read that there are actually quite a few technical challenges involved in getting the doses to care homes. Um, so... They definitely need to not put the cart before the horse. Um, I mean, you could say maybe they've done that already, but definitely the next <laughs> phase needs to be really carefully managed. Yeah, I thought it was quite striking that um, Boris Johnson, was, particularly at PMQs yesterday, was going, you know, not you know, quite downbeat by his standards because he, he really doesn't want yeah. people to get sort of carried away. Yeah, and I think that that has been the sort of the tug of war going on ever since we got some positive news about vaccines is that they have to say, yes, this is on the horizon. But in the words of JVT, don't tear the pants out. We need to <laughs> kind of keep, keep our heads and um, and it, it doesn't give anyone a carte blanche. Even, even when you get vaccinated, they're not clear about what that means for transmission. So, um, so yeah, the, the, there is still a long way to go, and you could definitely see that in the way Boris Johnson was approaching it yesterday. On the subject of Jonathan Van Tam, who appears to be going for a, a late push to become the star of 2020, uh, he's been out on a media round this morning, but he seems to have just said that Father Christmas is top of the list for a vaccine. I mean, he is. He's. I he mean, definitely knows how how to get the headlines. But it, it's, it's been a long time think, coming because Witty and Valance just they didn't really deliver, did they? And but we we we've needed we've needed a, 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 one of these kind of uh, previously faceful faceless people to emerge, like we had with Ian Macdonald all those years ago in the in the, in the Falklands, the, the the deadpan spokesman for the Ministry of Defence. And but Van Tam, like you say, he's he's, he's come good in the end. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, uh, it does feel like Chris Whitty peaked a bit early. Um, when uh, who was it? Was it Joe Lysett did a portrait of him on uh, the Grace and Perry's <laughs> Art Club? That seems like a very long time ago now. You know, we we, we we're all so over Chris Whitty. Uh, it's all about JVT now. I know yeah. that even the Prime Minister keeps calling him JVT and then immediately correcting himself and saying, no, sorry, Jonathan, uh, which, which sort of highlights it even more. Well, but apparently he likes apparently he likes to be called JVT and he signs off that way in emails. Um, uh, yeah, and of course, famously, he loves hand. it. He loves it. I mean, everyone, everyone, every potential star needs a little, needs a little tag like that. I mean, JVT is perfect. It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, it's perfect. And uh, yeah, he. I, you do. You. It's a lot, it's, it's a lot better than web. Sorry for Chris Whitty, because he <laughs> had to kind of deal with all the rubbish phase of, you know, things just being unremittingly bleak, and now JVT is here for the kind of. The good news side of it. <laughs> somebody else has just tweeted, somebody called Joel's just tweeted, saying, sorry, but the MPs issuing statements about Father Christmas need to get in a room and get their stories straight. The COVID Santa narrative is all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, anyway, that's tickled me. Um, uh, let's stop having fun and talk about Labour's position on Brexit instead. Uh, there's a story in the Financial Times today that... Um, uh, there's a split at the top. Keir Starmer and his shadow chancellor Annalisa Dodds are at odds over whether or not Labour should back the Brexit deal that we don't actually have yet, but could come any day now. There's the longest pregnancy ever, this. But, um, uh, yeah, there's lots of lots of curry and pineapple seems to have been eaten and it could come any day now. Um, uh, Robert, you've, uh, I think, joined the election campaign last year. You went to lots of the red wall seats that ended did, up flipping. Yeah. Uh, to the Tories, what does Labour need to do to get back in with some of those voters? And does it need, you know, does abstaining on Brexit just after abstaining on coronavirus is that the sort of thing that they're yeah. looking for? I don't think abstaining really cuts the mustard on anything with anybody. Uh, it needs to back a deal, doesn't it? You can't say uh, you can't just say all this time that we need to do a deal, and then when there is a deal, uh, say. We're not going to back it because we don't like the fine detail. I mean, uh, the politics of it surely suggests that Labour. Uh, I mean, I don't think it will get, get be, impress those voters a great deal, but it uh, it'll impress them a little bit more than saying, "Oh, we don't really like this. We're going to abstain." Yeah, um, Esther, I suppose it is tricky, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you'd expect the the opposition could say. Uh, we don't like this deal. We wouldn't have done that deal, so we're going to vote against it. That'd be the obvious sort of normal thing. But then they sort of overthink it and think, well, we can't do that because we upset lots of people because that'll look like we're against Brexit. So maybe we should vote for it. But then it looks like they're getting into bed with the Tories. So they end up opting for the, um, on this uh, other big issue, uh, which decides the fate of the country, we don't have a view and we're just going to go and find something else to do for the afternoon. Yeah, I, I can't help thinking that we're being an abstention too far. There's obviously been a strategy at play with um, the with the response to coronavirus in terms of backing things in the national interest. And here there's a calculated view on the coronavirus rules this week. Um, any kind of hit that the Labour Party takes overlooking indecisive um, won't kind of stick around in voters' minds for a long time. It's kind of early on in the life of a parliament in one of many, many votes on coronavirus. But Brexit isn't the same as that. And it is a sort of, it's a totemic issue. And yeah, you, 
you do have to wonder whether it will just feed into the narrative that was so damaging to them at the last election about not having a position or not knowing what their position is. How do you think Labour are doing winning back some of those those voters that you spoke to last year, Robert? Because it, it still feels a bit like the approach of some North London Remainers trying to work out what these strange people might want from them, rather than having a sort of natural feel for connecting with with large parts of the electorate. Yeah, uh, I think... Well, I think... That, I mean, Corbyn going was obviously a huge plus, because uh, as everyone says who who went to those seats in the last election uh brexit wasn't the only issue it was uh, corbyn was at least as important on the doorsteps as brexit was so the fact of his going uh is a plus but their progress seems to have stalled since then uh and that is i think a function of the uh the yes the labor party has become uh by degrees a very metropolitan and party of the big cities and a party of the uh, of the young, uh, uh, keen on a lot of issues which uh, its more traditional voters are either opposed to or not don't care about, uh, and they on social issues, the polls suggest that those voters have uh, more in common with conservative voters than they do with uh, other Labour voters uh, in the uh, in the big cities. So. I think progress has stalled, uh, is my answer to that. On the other hand, everything's stalled because of the virus. I mean, the Tories were trying to shore up their new coalition with uh, with levelling up and and, uh, and public spending in the north, and they've done a bit of that, but that's been slightly lost. Everything's been lost to view, hasn't it? So, yeah. Um, just finally then, let's talk about uh, this announcement from uh, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, this morning. The, uh, mm-hmm. the exams next year will be made easier because this generation is facing a tougher um, uh, conditions. You know, obviously, um, they missed an awful lot of uh, their term last in the, in the last school year. This time round, you know, if they're having to self-isolate and that sort of stuff. Uh, so there's going to be more generous grading than usual. Um, and they'll get more advanced notice at the end of January of some of the topics that are going to be covered in the exams, um, and formula sheets and things like that will be uh, supplied. Actually, this is reversing a lot of the sort of get-tough measures that Michael Gove uh, introduced when he was Education Secretary. I mean, this is really tough, isn't it, for this generation going through GCSEs and A-levels, Esther? But um, is, is there a risk that they end up becoming sort of tarnished as, oh, you're the year that did the easy ones? I mean, I... I suppose, and Gavin Williamson was asked about this, about this morning, but I think, you know, people will recognise this was an exceptional time and and people are sort of focused on their own results and their own time at university rather than looking at the year before or after. Um, and um, But I think he... There is a sort of tacit admission here that kind of stopping the exams caused more problems than it solved, and they really need to find a way to go ahead so that they don't run into those same kind of disasters again. Um, although I would note that Gavin Williamson 
managed to kind of hijack his own broadcast around this morning by um, going off on a tangent about Brexit and vaccines. <laughs> and I think that's probably what most people are going to remember. Yeah, he's yes. Let's not get bogged down in that again. Again about the the merits of no. of, of whether or not Brexit is 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 the cause of Britain getting no, the vaccine no, no. first. Let's not no. get bogged down in that. Um, what about you, Robert? What's your take on this on this approach to to exams next year? I'm I'm really conflicted about this. Actually, I think it's really I think it's really really difficult. I think I suppose it it it, it had some weight with me when Williamson said that uh, Germany, Singapore, Finland, uh, three of the best performing education systems in the world, have taken this approach as opposed to the Welsh who've uh, scrapped exams altogether. On the other hand, I have some sympathy with the Welsh approach because, I don't know, I'm just thinking exams maybe sort of had their day anyway. I mean, they're just a memory test. And uh, uh, it's difficult. I mean, I guess they had to find some way of reviving them for next year. The the, the kids taking them next year have had a harder time than the ones who took them this year. And if they need a bit of uh, uh, levelling up, then so be it if they're going to stick with that system. Just finally then, this um, the story that's been around this week about the, the Margaret Thatcher statue. They're now planning, mm. a, planning a £100,000 unveiling ceremony. Uh, the statue was supposed to go in Parliament Square. They thought it might become the target of protests. It's now going to be in her uh, ho- former hometown of Grantham. Um, who would you like to see a statue of, Esther? Well, I've got an idea. I've got a solution to their problem, I think. If they put one up of Gillian Anderson as Margaret <laughs> maybe maybe that will be problem solved. Problem solved. Yeah. Or Meryl or Meryl Streep, given that Streep's performance was yeah. slightly superior. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. Um, uh, Gillian Anderson's portrayal is so stiff. I'm not sure we want to be able to tell the difference between that yeah. and the statue anyway. It- the statue might get attacked just by uh, for aesthetic or dramatic reasons rather than <laughs> political ones. Yeah, just by historians um, yes. uh, who are very yeah. cross um, yeah. about accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> that was Robert Crampton and Esther Webber, and you can read uh, both of them by subscribing to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're heading down under. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now we are heading to Australia. So are you sick of this December weather, bored of the ongoing lockdown and ready for a bit of winter sun? Well, hop aboard Times Radio Airwaves. We're off to Australia. Just a short stopover in Kuala Lumpur. Then we're off to Australia itself. A country facing multiple threats and challenges, it has to be said. Uh, After all but eliminating coronavirus... It's endured the hottest November on record and now faces devastating outbreaks of wildfires. And there's just a small matter of a trade and propaganda war with China, uh, which could end up coming to us here in the UK too. Uh, Well, earlier I spoke to Madeleine Morris, who's a presenter of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and I started by asking her what the biggest issue was for Australians at the moment. Is it bushfires, coronavirus or trade with China? Well, look, I have to tell you, on on the bushfire front... um, The Fraser Island fire actually is, I know it sounds perverse, uh, given that half of the island has actually burned, but it is, it seems to be okay. So it's in a really difficult part for firefighters to access, um, which has been part of the reason that it's been burning so long. But it does seem to be that um, it's not threatening any homes at this particular point in time. And we are expecting on the bushfire front in Australia, we're in the La Nina part of the El Nino cycle. So we're actually expecting quite a wet summer as opposed to last summer, which, as you well know, um, was just so hot and dry and we had those devastating fires. So in in terms of bushfires, we have seen some grass fires already and we are actually predicted to have a, a more of a grass fire rather than a strong wildfire bushfire season. Um, but it is predicted to be more of a wet summer um, as I was saying, so that's that's that means that it's not so high up in our uh, in our minds. Um, on the coronavirus front, we're actually doing pretty well, as you will know. Um, after all the trouble that we had in Victoria, we have now reached more than 28 days of uh, no locally acquired cases. Uh, we did have one locally acquired case in New South Wales today, but I think it tells a real story that the fact that there was one locally acquired case was on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, um, which says a, a lot about it. So we are in the unbelievably fortunate position, having really done some very hard yards in terms of lockdown, that we are now at almost effective <clears throat> elimination. So we're really just waiting for a vaccine to come through. What is next step for us in terms of coronavirus is uh, getting lots of Australians home, and that remains a really big challenge. There is a significant number um, over 30,000 Australians who are still stuck overseas. We want to get them home and we want to start international students back as well. Those are the next challenges for Australia. Um, and then when it comes to trade with China, I would say that this is uh, kind of what is certainly occupying my mind most as a, as a journalist and is what is occupying the, the minds of our leaders. Um, so we are in a very precarious situation with China. 40% of our foreign trade is with China and China... Uh, we are, we're not in a trade war, but they are giving us 
a very, very cold shoulder. So um, they have uh, rejected several of our key exports, the latest one being thermal coal, over a billion dollars of which, um, which is about 600,000, uh, sorry, 600 million pounds of which is currently sitting on ships off the Chinese coast because of supposed quality issues. Um, so we are now in the depths of a, a, a social media war um, and the beginnings of pr- very serious trade difficulties. And, and this is what is going to be the biggest challenge for us uh, in terms of e- economics and politics over the coming months. Uh, just on the on uh, coronavirus, what we wouldn't give to have front page stories saying that there was one case, um, uh, <laughs> given the state of uh, the, the number yeah. of cases in the UK right now. Explain to people who don't know how Australia have uh, driven down the number of cases, because like you said, it's not it's not been without uh, pain and uh, Australians who haven't been able to come home. It's been pretty tough, isn't it? How's that happened? It's Yeah, it's been really tough. So we were one of the first countries to lock down our borders. Um, Being an island nation, we kind of have a bit of a a geographical advantage and capability in being able to do that. We had a national lockdown towards the start of the year around April, which successfully suppressed the violence. But then um, listeners may have heard that in Victoria, we had a breach of hotel quarantine because returning travellers have been uh, quarantined at hotels here. Um, that's how we're doing it. Uh, we had a, a series of breaches in Melbourne um, of hotel quarantine, and that meant that it, it, it really became very high. At one point, in a state of 6.5 million people, we ha- were having 700 new infections a day. So uh, in Victoria, we went down to a second lockdown. It was one of the hardest, longest lockdowns in the world. Um, uh, so no school, no childcare, work from home. There was a curfew. We were confined to within five k's of our home, only by, allowed out for one hour a day for exercise. We did that. We did uh, a, a second lockdown of varying degrees of difficulty for 112 very long days. Uh, we're now at the situation where we are opening up borders again because internal borders within Australia were closed. That's been really difficult. I haven't seen my parents for nearly a year and there are many, many families in my situation as well. Um, so it has been it has been really tough and, and economically it's been tough as well, although I do have to say uh, we have just yesterday officially come out of recession. So we had two quarters of negative growth um, and just yesterday, but for the third quarter of the year, we, we had positive growth. So because we have managed to get the virus under control, we are now starting to see a bit of a, an economic rebound, uh, but it is by no means over. Lots of police signs on shops, uh, high unemployment, um, and it's, the economic costs are set to continue for a while. Is there sort of awareness in Australia about how, how Britain is, you know, like you said, it's an island nation, albeit one on the other side of the, of the world, how we've approached coronavirus? Um, you know, we did have a long, painful uh, lockdown, but without the success of getting the, the number of cases right down, is there sort of awareness of how other countries have covered it? Yeah, very much so. And, and um, in the UK, oh, so many Australians are in the UK, and, and we have such a strong association with the country and the US as well. Um, I mean, I think that there are, are, there are differences in how the countries, those two countries have approached it. Um, obviously, in the US, the Trump administration never really particularly took it seriously. You certainly wouldn't say that of the Johnson administration. But I do have to say, in that summer, <clears throat> when you were all going on holidays to Greece and France and Italy, we were just looking at it going, what, what is going on here? 
um, this is not over. And it, it did it did kind of baffle a lot of us. And I do have to say that, you know, having been through the lockdown that we have just come through, arguments over where the pubs can close at 11 or 10 p.m. just seem baffling to us. Finally, I should just ask you about uh, Brexit and the prospect of a trade deal between uh, Britain and Australia. Every time uh, Boris Johnson talks about it, he ends up talking about Tam Tam biscuits uh, as being sort of... Tim set- Tam, Tam Tam, Tim Tam. Tam Tam, right, fine. Tim Tam, but well, this is this is because we don't have them, and the excitement of a tra- trade deal, <laughs> uh, a trade deal with uh, Australia means that then I will be able to experience the joy of Tim, Tim Tam biscuits. Um, where where are we on the idea of a, of a trade deal with Britain and Australia? Australia is extremely keen to pursue a trade deal with Britain and a separate trade deal with with the EU, Um, particularly now that we are in such difficulty with China. We're absolutely full steam ahead at looking for other markets. Um, And uh, for a a number of our exports, we are are very keen to increase that with the UK. We do, as far as I'm aware, still have um, our former Prime Minister Tony Abbott over there trying to work on that is yeah i think that there is a a lot of keenness here and certainly from an australian perspective um very very keen to to get the free trade agreement happening as and as far as i'm aware um those negotiations are are very much full steam ahead as they are with other nations as as well Uh, that was madeline moist presenter at the australian broadcasting corporation uh, yeah, I think I've got Jonathan Van Tam on the brain, which is why I got my Tim Tams and my Tam Tams muddled up. Uh, anyway, let's stick with that question of trade and China and this uh, escalation of the trade war uh, between uh, Australia and China. I've been speaking to the Labour Senator Kimberly Kitching, who chairs the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade References Committee in the Australian Parliament. Uh, just to warn you, in the background, you can hear bells ringing. This is a, this is a successful export from Britain to Australia, um, the, the division bells in Parliament. So uh, occasionally there are bells ringing in the background. Don't panic. It's not your doorbell. Uh, anyway, so I was speaking to the Senator Kimberly Kitching, and I started by asking her to explain what happened when China shared a doctored photo of Australian troops and what it means for Australian and Chinese trade. Well, what happened was um, obviously Australia has had soldiers in Afghanistan and we recently uh, had a report because there were some incidents there, a very a small number given we had 20,000 soldiers there, but 32 soldiers had committed acts that weren't acceptable and um, would you know, have been described by the report uh, as war crimes. And anyway, we, of course, as a country, are being entirely transparent about this. Anyway, what happened was that the Chinese Foreign Ministry put out a tweet, a doctored photograph, um, that was a soldier um, essentially putting a knife to an Afghan girl and, you know, killing her and, um, you know, saying that Australia is, you know, should be shocked by its you know, it's human rights and it's actions that it's it's done. And, you know, we, we would think that, you know, this is highly disrespectful and highly offensive to our Defence Force personnel. And so, of course, this was a, a very insulting tweet that they put out and, of course, fake and doctored. And so that's what's happened. And, of course, it's created an absolute outcry here. And... You know, we're very grateful for, uh, you know, our friends in Britain, um, our friends in America and in many other democracies for standing with Australia. But that's not the only thing, Matt, that's been happening here. Obviously, Australia has a large trade, you know, has a very big trade relationship with China. 
and essentially there is some economic coercion that's going on. And what's also happened is the Chinese government has put out a list of 14 grievances. They didn't give it to the government here, to the Australian government. They actually gave it to a journalist. And what essentially it would mean is that so it included things like we couldn't speak out on human rights abuses. Uh, we couldn't, um, you know, we, we couldn't comment on Chinese activity. Uh, and it was just an unacceptable, you know, it would be a compromise of our values as a country because, or any country that's a democracy, because the pillars of a democracy include, you know, such things as a free press, freedom of association. Um, you know, it includes uh, a rule of law, the rights of minorities. And we think that, you know, these list of grievances uh, are just, you know, not acceptable and would compromise us as a people and as a country. So that's what's been going on. But we also have had tariffs, huge tariffs put on our agri-produce, including our, the Australian wine industry. So I'm talking sort of north of 200%. Wow. Uh, and sort of this implication that Australia has been dumping its wine. Now, I think a lot of British people know Australia has very beautiful wine. I can, and, I can know, vouch for that, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> So what we would say is that there is no way we would be dumping that wine in a market, given that a lot of it is premium, you know, really premium, expensive, beautiful wine. So, you know, we're, so there's a, obviously there's a, a, you know, there's this going on as well. The tra it's not just wine; it's our beef, our lobster um, that was sort of held up at ports. Um, you know, it's, it's barley. Uh, so, you know, I mean, so and obviously Australian agri-produce is very high quality because, you know, we have very clean air, very good soil quality. And, and really here, important to the economy as well. It's a, it's a big part yes. of, of the Australian economy. In, the, in that, um, as you described, the list of uh, grievances or complaints that, that Beijing released, it, they said if you make China the enemy, uh, China will be the enemy. And it's obviously part of this sort of escalation of of tensions between China and Australia and the uh, citing the fact that Australia has, has moved to remove uh, Huawei from its 5G network. Yeah. I mean, quite a lot of what China is citing as the grievances with Australia could read across totally with um, uh, the UK. So how, if people in the UK are... Are listening to this and thinking, well, this could be us next. You know, if China is becoming more and more aggressive, is is Australia just at the front of the queue for this? Because you're geographically well, nearer, do you think? Well, we think so, and we think that we're being used in some ways as a test case by China. But we think that that's actually not the actions of a mature and responsible country. You know, we're all members of different multilateral fora. Uh, for example, the United Nations, for example, the World Trade Organization. And we think that, you know, we're not the only country facing these issues. Obviously, Canada's had trade issues uh, with with China. And they've also had, where when the CFO of Huawei was arrested in Canada, two of two Canadian citizens were detained in China. You know, we know that Norway, when they awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, to a human rights activist in China, Mr. Liu, that the next day importing from Norway uh, ceased in China and um, the trade talks, were, they, they ended. And so we know that there are many countries that are having issues currently or have had issues in the past. But we think it's important as a country to stand up for our values. 
and those values are, you know, the values of a liberal democracy. And in fact, obviously, we inherited these from uh, the United Kingdom. And, you know, we're very proud of those values and, and, you know, having a free and actually a very successful society here in Australia. What would you like to see the British government do uh, in response to what's been happening? Well, in, ca- in fact, this morning, my time, uh, we actually heard from the British High Commissioner. She did a presentation to the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. And, you know, her view is that what she was saying was, you know, firstly, we noted that um, Mr Raab had given a statement in the Commons, but also uh, that, you know, there are ways of, you know, like-minded countries should cooperate and work together uh, to protect each other's, not only their own values, but each other's values. So I think we do, there are countries that have a lot in common. And in fact, what we have done is set up an interparliamentary alliance on China and that has 18 countries in it and the, the European Parliament, so 19 legislatures. It has hundreds of members from of parliamentarians. Uh, the British co-chairs are seen, Duncan Smith and Baroness Helena Kennedy, and they've been fantastic, um, you know, in, in in being very supportive, and we really appreciate that. You mentioned the uh, the interparliamentary alliance on China, uh, urging everyone to have one or two bottles of uh, Australian wine this Christmas uh, to show we... solidarity. I mean, it's ways of so- showing solidarity. There are worse things to do. <laughs> well, we we felt felt it was a campaign that everyone could get behind, Matt. I think it's fair to say that's a campaign we can all get behind this Christmas, is drinking Australian wine in solidarity over their trade war uh, with China. That was Senator Kimberly Kitching uh, talking to me. We're still in Australia this morning on Times Radio. Uh, We're now taking a look at the wildfires, uh, which are ablaze again. The the year started with wildfires in Australia, and they appear to be ending in the same way. And the uh, impact that climate change is having on the Australian environment. Earlier, I spoke to Hannah Robinson, who's the director of Drop Bear Adventures, on Fraser Island, which is the centre of the current outbreak of wildfires. The island's actually known as Gyari by Australians. Fraser Island is European name. And we've been, you know, showing people around doing four-wheel drive tours, um, just, yeah, telling them all about it. And we've had lots of people that come and fallen in love with the place and so many that have messaged us over the last few days just equally feeling our heartache with us. You know, it only takes a few days to fall in love with this place and, and we've been lucky enough to be here for 10 years and you may tell by my accent um, that I'm actually not around from this neck of the woods originally I'm actually from the UK myself and I came here and fell in love it does, I mean you're painting a lovely picture uh, to be honest and looking out of the grey grey window here in uh, London I could, I could see the appeal I could see the appeal <laughs> you um, can see why I never came back <laughs> exactly right exactly. so explain what's been happening um, with these these bushfires and how bad they've, they've got and why you know six weeks is a long time is, is it particularly difficult for firefighters to tackle these it's extremely difficult, and um, the reason being is the island, by its very nature, is the largest sand island in the world. So, obviously, being all vegetation uh, growing on sand, the, the soil is very porous. So, unlike uh, what usually happens with a, a fire, a wildfire, they'll get in and create a fire break by dropping lots of water, uh, water bombing. And unfortunately, despite the extreme efforts that the QFES are going to, through at the moment, the soil's just not retaining that moisture. So um, it's, you know, it's really a case of just water bombing it as much as they can directly at the flames. And the other problem that we've got on the island as well, with it being World Heritage 
and we haven't had the best management in the last few years. A lot of fire break lines have not been maintained properly. And that has also hindered the, the firefighters getting in on the ground. So we're, we really only have aerial support at the moment. And uh, I saw a report this week that Australia had experienced its uh, hottest November on record with more uh, uh, hot temperatures expected over the coming months. What impact is that having? And is there a point where, you know, climate change, hotter and hotter springs and summers in Australia might mean that this is just an inevitability and maybe that you even have to leave the island? Oh, you had to bring out the double C word, didn't you? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Look, climate change, in my view, as somebody who has guided in nature for 10 years and five years before that has been traveling the world, I've been very lucky to get out of the office about 15 years ago. And and my whole life has evolved um, around just being in nature now. And I'm really noticing, uh, as as well as anyone I speak to on the ground, you can really tell that, you know, we're we're just going through, like you said, we started the year in fires, you know, the first day of summer, and it's already uh, record heat being recorded. It's a scary prospect that the country that we know and love and um, is changing. And we have no control over it. And this is the worst thing about this fire right now. We had fires on Gari last year. Uh, we actually lost about 13,500 hectares on the southern side of the island. Now with this fire, we're close to, at the moment already, 80,000 hectares. Wow. It's not going to go out anytime soon. Um, firefighters are literally saying the only thing that's going to stop it is rain. So when you add that up, and you know that's close to ninety-five thousand hectares, and the island's only one hundred and sixty-five thousand hectares, it's such a scary prospect for us that we're losing so much biodiversity on you know an island that is world heritage listed. It's also part of the Queen's canopy. So it's a really significant site. And, you know, so for this to burn, you can't help but have a growing anger among business owners, residents, um, holidaymakers, people from all over the world that have, have come and enjoyed this special place and now asking why is more not being done? And are you, are you hopeful you'll be able to stay on the island long term? Oh, look, I fell in love with the place. I met my husband there. I got married yes it's my home so however long she takes to regenerate i will be there with her and doing my best to to help the traditional owners uh you know rehabilitate uh, the wildlife and the, the flora as much as i can i worry that people will not want to come to the island but like i said i've been so overwhelmed with so many messages of support I think regardless of the state of the island after this fire, she holds such a special place in so many people's hearts that people will come back to support tourism and to support the island, getting back to her former glory. Well, we all hope it does that. That was Hannah Robinson there, who is the director of Drop Bear Adventures on Fraser Island, as um, Earl Gari, as I think she, she points out, is known as the locals, um, which is currently at the centre of the current outbreak of uh, wildfires in Australia. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a nice tour of Australia and all the different things that the countries facing they're on the other side of the world but lots of the same issues that we're facing right now but unfortunately it's time to come home so seats in the upright position put away your tray table stow your hand luggage times radio airways heading back to britain just a short stopover in kuala lumpur and then it's back on board times radio airways heading from australia and back to britain 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And listen to my show on Times Radio, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. And to read more about what we've been discussing, you can subscribe at thetimes.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.